0: Hello and welcome. UVA Speaks is a podcast of Lifetime Learning, a division of the Office of Engagement at the University of Virginia. Lifetime Learning brings the knowledge and expertise of UVA's faculty to the university's alumni, friends, and families. My name is Susan Lynch, and I am the Associate Director of Lifetime Learning at the University of Virginia's Office of Engagement. This podcast features Eric Lindstrom, an associate professor in the Corcoran Department of History and the College and Graduate School of Arts and Sciences at the University of Virginia. Professor Lindstrom is an historian of modern Britain in its imperial, European, and global contexts. His research explores the politics of knowledge and the circulation of information with particular interests in science and technology, war and violence, and the long history of decolonialization. His most recent book, Age of Emergency, Living with Violence at the End of the British Empire, traces the reports of atrocities in Malia, Kenya, and Cyprus as they circulated through British society after 1945. In this podcast, Professor Lindstrom will talk with us about the implications of Brexit in the UK today and also his new book. So thank you, Professor, for speaking with me today.
1: Thanks, Susan, it's nice to be here.
0: Great, so can we start with you by providing some context for what was happening in Britain in and around 2016 that led to Brexit and then sort of what is Brexit in general?
1: Sure. Uh well being a historian, I, I feel like we have to go back quite a ways before 2016. I hope you don't mind if I do that. I sure. uh, totally expected that when you invited me. Um so I, I mean I think for me, um, we do need to look at some of the longer-term causes that that led up to the Brexit referendum vote in, in 2016. Um and, and I think it's perhaps most useful to think about this in terms of two big questions. How did the Conservative Party, which is after all really the, the dominant political party in Britain for the later 20th and 21st centuries turn against uh, British membership in the European Union? And then how does public opinion change? Um, How did we get to a point where 52% of voters in the United Kingdom can vote to leave uh, the European Union? So I'll I'll talk a little bit about the conservative side of the story first, because I think it's important for everyone to appreciate that, although both parties were always fairly divided on the European question, um, all the way through the you know, from the beginnings of European unification after the Second World War, uh, through the 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s and beyond, um, the conservatives were probably the more pro-European party for most of that period. So we can go back to Winston Churchill, even in the 1930s, talking enthusiastically about a United States of Europe. Um, Churchill was also very um, active in encouraging European integration efforts uh, in the 40s and 50s, although... Um, I think it's also fair to say he wasn't necessarily behind the idea of Britain as a full member and participant in that process. Um, But you also have to keep in mind, I think, that uh, the first generation of of European leaders after the Second World War um, were, for the most part, Christian Democrats. They were conservative. They were anti-communist. They were religious, um, Catholic for the most part, actually. So... um, That's a project that always had a certain kind of affinity with conservatives in Britain, many of whom, including Churchill, were supportive of British involvement in things like the European Court of Human Rights, because they saw it as a way to limit the growth of socialism at home and the welfare state at home. Uh, By the same token, of course, that's part of why the Labour Party was always fairly suspicious of European integration, for all the the same reasons that conservatives found it at least um, potentially appealing. Um, so that's, uh, I think, an important part of the story to keep in mind. Um, of course, the Conservatives for a long time, and I think this has changed actually in recent years, but Conservatives were the party of business. Uh, and there was a lot of interest, particularly as the British economy began to sort of sputter in the, the later 60s and 70s, um, in gaining access to the European market. Um, business was very squarely behind membership. So. Um, That gives you some sense, I think, of um, why conservatives traditionally were were more enthusiastic about Europe. And in fact, uh, the initial British application to join uh, what was then the European Economic Community in the early 1960s happened under a conservative leader, Harold Macmillan. Of course, that was followed by the famous De Gaulle veto. Uh, in the early '60s, um, and eventual British entry uh, into uh, the EEC in the early '70s was negotiated by another Conservative government under uh, Heath. Um, so uh, that's all very important to keep in mind. You know, Conservatives supplied the majority of the votes for that initial entry in, in the early '70s, and so um, even in the uh, referendum vote, which took place in 1975, the first referendum vote in which two-thirds of the British public uh, supported. Um, membership of uh, the EEC, as it was then called, Um, the Conservatives were again, sort of the the party most squarely behind membership. Margaret Thatcher famously took a picture of herself wearing a sweater with the flags of all the European member states on it as part of the campaign. So um, anyway, uh, that's part of the history that I think we need to account for. So what changes? Uh, And I'll finally get a little closer to the present now. Um, Well, I do think the end of the Cold War is a really significant turning point here. So Anti-socialism, anti-communism, as I said, was sort of always part of the attraction of Europe for conservatives. Um, I think although the Atlantic Alliance, the alliance with the United States was also obviously a very big part of the British security picture in the context of the Cold War, the idea of sort of being left out of this uh, alliance in Western Europe, I think was always another factor kind of driving uh, Britain into, um, into the EU as it eventually became. Also worth keeping in mind, I think, uh, once the Cold War is over, anti-communism loses a big part of its salience as a kind of unifying force for the conservatives. So um, if the USSR can no longer be the great enemy, the great bugbear, who does that enemy become? I think in some ways, Brussels, uh, European bureaucrats, fill that role or come to fill that role within the conservative party. Um, Again, there had always been a vocal minority at least a minority, and sometimes a majority in both parties that were skeptical of the EU. Um, In the case of the conservatives, that minority was also kind of the nationalist minority, um, hostile to immigration from the former empire, Um, nostalgic for an empire that was being lost, nostalgic for British greatness in the world. Um, Figures like Enoch Powell, who gives this really sort of rabid anti-immigrant speech, the Rivers of Blood speech in 1968, was also a Euroskeptic that faction of the conservative party just becomes more powerful over time. And again, particularly after the Cold War is over, I think you see those concerns that had once been seen as fairly fringe questions of national identity, questions of sovereignty, becoming much more uh, important over the course of the 1990s. And even Thatcher herself is going to sort of change her tune by the end of her time uh, in office. By the same token, the Labour Party, uh, which had Um, at least in its sort of socialist, hard-left base, seen a lot of suspicion of European integration because it was seen as a capitalist project, as a project of big business, as potentially a threat to the welfare state. That sort of far-left Uh, constituency within the Labour Party actually become smaller over time. And so under Tony Blair in the 1990s, you actually see Labour become, in some ways, the party of international finance and the party of international capital. So the parties, in some ways, are reversing themselves. Um, And the fact that the Conservatives turn against empire, excuse me, turn against Europe um, by 2016, at least in in significant numbers, I think is a a big part of the story here. Um, There's just one final uh, piece uh, and more immediate context uh, that I'll mention here, um, which is the context of austerity. Um, after the Great Financial Crisis of 2008, of course, politics across the world is disrupted, and you know maybe we'll talk more about the the global context of populism. That's certainly part of the story in Britain as well. This isn't just about British peculiarities and British specificities. But um, what does happen in Britain after not just 2008? which, of course, is associated with all kinds of anti-elite sentiments, suspicion of finance, suspicion of so-called cosmopolitan elites, all of those sorts of uh, stories that we've heard elsewhere. Um, When a conservative government comes to power in 2010 as part of a coalition, they cut government spending deep to the bone. Um, Austerity goes deeper. Cuts in government spending go deeper in Britain than in any other Western economy after the great financial crisis. So we have stimulus in the U.S., Probably not enough stimulus, but we do have a stimulus in the US. China has an even bigger stimulus. Europe tends to cut spending, and no, nowhere in Europe do they cut spending more deeply than in Britain. And I think this really has a lot of effects in terms of slowing economic growth, um, also just kind of um, diminishing the quality of life. You know, Things like rubbish collection and, and bus service, all of these things are sort of in decline. And so I think there's a kind of dissatisfaction. There's a sense that things are moving in the wrong direction. By the time we get to 2016. uh, It's not actually tied to Europe, of course, in any significant measure, but I think it's another factor that sort of explains some of the discontent that we see. Um, And that then brings me back finally to the point about public opinion. So as I say, uh, in the 1975 referendum, something like two-thirds of the British public vote to stay in uh, the recently joined EEC. Um, 52 percent, of course, vote to leave by 2016. So how do we explain that change? Um, Obviously, the fact that the Conservative Party is becoming a more uh, anti-Europe party has a lot to do with it. Certainly, the tabloid press kind of picking up a message of populism and Brussels bashing, uh, including the Murdoch press, but not just the Murdoch press, plays a very big part here. Again, this this search for a new enemy after the Cold War, I think, is really um, quite quite significant. we can maybe talk more about some of the other the other factors there but uh yes um i think those two pieces um seeing how the conservative party changes and then seeing how there's kind of a, a change changing uh, receptivity to that message by the broader public um at least gets us some of the way toward explaining how we get to that that brexit vote in 2016.
0: great thank you um for that context um so the political landscape uh in the uk has been very tumultuous and um you know i was doing some reading in preparation for the podcast and i was reminded that in the last six years there have been four prime ministers and two elections yeah that's just a lot of change and and how much of this can be attributed to brexit do you feel
1: right so it it is fascinating to watch, right? Because we think of Britain as the the homeland of political stability and uh, you know liberalism and the classical sort of political sense, parliamentary government, and all of that. Um, so what's happened? You know, how do we get this sort of instability we would associate stereotypically with an Italian government? You know, at many points in the later twentieth century, where um, these coalitions are constantly shifting and collapsing. early Brexit's a huge part of the story. Um, And, you know, with some of these um, changes of government, Brexit is directly part of the story, right? So David Cameron resigns. The conservative prime minister who called the Brexit referendum resigns after the no vote wins, because he, of course, was on the yes side, even though to appease, you know, uh, anti-Europe forces within his party, he, he agreed to call the referendum. That brings Theresa May to power. Theresa May faces this agonizing situation of having to enact a Brexit, which a majority of the um, Westminster Parliament that was then sitting did not support. And so May gets really hung up on trying to push something through that a majority of voters have um, supported, but the majority of, of members of Parliament do not. And of course, this is one of the ways that Brexit destabilizes British politics. There's a tension between majority rule as expressed in a referendum and a parliamentary system where people are ostensibly delegating decision-making powers to to MPs, right? So if MPs don't actually agree with this outcome, you know, how does that work? And it turns out it doesn't work very well. Um, And so there was an agonizing series of votes about what kind of Brexit would be pursued. How do we deal with the very complicated question of Northern Ireland? And and May really got hung up on a lot of those problems. Um, And she does at one point call an election in the hopes of getting a bigger majority. Her majority actually gets cut. Um, to her surprise, and so she has an even smaller majority to work with, which makes all of these decisions all the more agonizing. Uh, she's ultimately brought down by her own party, um, by forces which are even more enthusiastic about Brexit than she had been, it's essentially you know, a farther right force. And so this is another way in which I think Brexit destabilizes British politics. Um, it empowers the far-right uh, faction, if you like, or wing of the Conservative Party, which traditionally, of course, had been a kind of small C conservative party, uh, party of stable government, not radical change. Brexit has clearly um, sort of uh, disrupted that that tradition. Um, so th- then you get Boris Johnson, who's been brought down fairly recently, not directly by Brexit, but by his own kind of um, personal foibles and, and so on. Um, we then had the very brief and embarrassing interregnum of Liz Truss. Again, a hard right figure, A figure who never really would have been considered for prime minister, I think, in an era before Brexit, um, who then, in her very brief tenure in office, introduces this disastrous mini-budget, which at a time when inflation is rising and and interest rates are already rising, is um, essentially an attempt to slash taxes and slash spending. And of course, the markets hate it, the pound plummets, and she's sort of forced to resign shortly thereafter. Um, And so, of course, now we're on, on Rishi Sunak. So um, one thing to note there, and I know you want to talk more about parliamentary government, which will be an interesting interesting part of the conversation, I think. Um, there have only been two elections in this period in which we've had five different prime ministers, right? Mm-hmm. So um, there's a way in which parliamentary government, which which used to be kind of a stabilizing force, has now in some ways become um, prone to, to instability because these internal party problems um, are enough to bring down a government, right? And so that, I think, is Maybe the big legs, uh, the big lesson here, rather, of, of Brexit, um, not just that some of these changes of government can be directly attributed to controversy and and sort of dispute about Brexit, but um, Brexit or the European issue, I should say, was always something that divided both parties. As I said, there were always very significant minorities that disagreed with the party line, whatever it was at the time, uh, on on Europe. Uh, the reason that that didn't necessarily destabilize british politics for the entire uh, second half of the 20th century was that europe was not usually a very significant issue uh, it was not something that voters cared a great deal about um even that you know sort of two thirds majority in the 75 referendum i think it can be somewhat misleading they were sort of you know voters were forced to to weigh in then but it was never an issue that voters ranked as a top top priority um, brexit forces it to be Kind of the central issue of British politics. And it's an issue that scrambles the old coalitions uh, and um, sort of highlights these internal divisions in a way that I think made, um, made politics much less
0: stable. Very okay, interesting. So yeah, so in the last few years here in the U.S., we've faced our own challenges uh, with our democracy. And at times I've wondered if we have the wrong form of government to deal with these kind of polarizing challenges. And so, You then look to other countries and what kind of government do they have, and the UK has a parliamentary government. And so over the course of history, how has UK's parliamentary government dealt with this kind of crisis?
1: Very interesting, right. So um, I guess let me say something first about why, what the advantages of parliamentary government are, at least in theory, right, around paper. So um, there are at least two big ones that I can think of. One, of course, is that you have a head of state as distinct from a head of government. So in a presidential system, as we have in the US, the president is the elected head of government, head of the executive branch. He's also the head of state. He's effectively our national figurehead. He meets other heads of state in times of crisis or mourning, uh, ceremonial occasions. The president is the figure um, to whom we turn collectively. Um, Of course, in a parliamentary system, at least in a parliamentary constitutional monarchy, as we have uh, in Britain, the head of state is the monarch. So, you, ostensibly, theoretically, you have a figure who can embody national unity, who can embody a kind of traditional continuity, a kind of collective purpose, and a figure who stands above politics, a figure who stands above partisan division. The prime minister, of course, is the king or the queen's first minister. Um, they govern in the name of the king or queen. They are the partisan figure. They're involved in the grubby day to day of politics. But again, there's a figure sort of above them, uh, who theoretically is supposed uh, to um, you know, embody, again, a kind of unity and identity that, that wouldn't be there otherwise. So that's one um, theoretical advantage of, of the system. Um, another, and, and this is something that would apply to all parliamentary systems, not just to those that have um, monarchs, um, is the fact that sort of by definition, um, the prime minister represents the party that holds the majority in parliament. And so what that means is that you can't have a situation of mixed government, as we often have in our presidential system, where the White House is controlled by one party and one or both houses of Congress is controlled by the other party, a recipe for for gridlock and for this kind of conflict that we've seen over the debt ceiling and government shutdowns and and other things of that nature. Um, Now, of course, some Americans might prefer that because it means things can't really get done. The flip side of that, of course, is that in the UK, uh, parties lay out very detailed platforms. This is what we're going to do if we win. If they win a majority of seats, um, either alone or with coalition partners in the House of Commons, they can then enact that program with with relatively few restrictions. The House of Lords can provide some sorts of breaks, um, but but effectively the House of Commons majority is is determinative. So um, that certainly is a recipe for less gridlock, and you know arguably it's a, it's a healthier system where. One party wins an election; they get the chance to do what they say they're going to do, and the voters at the next election can then sort of decide whether or not they actually like what's going on and, and change things. Um, we have such divided and, and diffuse responsibilities in the American system now that I think it can be hard for voters to render clear, clear judgment. So those are the advantages, in theory, I think, of the British system. Um, as we've seen, though, maybe in the past few years, you know, those advantages aren't all that they've they've cracked up to be. You know, one question that we can certainly ask is whether the monarch will continue to have the sort of unifying uh, potential or uh, function, I should say, that, that Elizabeth had. Um, I think it's fair to say that King Charles will not have that same unifying function. It sort of remains to be seen how his successors will be seen. Um, but the other thing I think to say is that, um, you know, the parliamentary system is... Um, is can be prone to instability in moments like the one that we're seeing now. Again, if you have internal party divisions, um, you have a situation where um, those kinds of behind-the-scenes struggles, factional struggles, um, conflicts between different ideological wings of a party can bring a leader down because they'll no longer maintain a majority in the House of Commons. Um, and so when parties are not unified or when parties disagree over fundamental issues, I think parliamentary systems can actually become less stable. Um, and there's also a kind of undemocratic feature then of, of parliamentary systems, um, which, of course, is that you can have a new prime minister uh, who's never actually been elected by the people. Right. It only takes them really a majority of the House of Commons and members of parliament uh, to effectively appoint or name a prime minister. Um, and so we've had the situations where, yes, eventually, if a prime minister wants to stay in office, they'll have uh, to face voters in an election. But um, they can um, rule and they can exercise quite a lot of authority for years. I should say, govern and exercise authority for years without necessarily having to face the voters. So that's certainly another issue. Um, you know, finally, I'll just say that the the issue of populism that we've seen as mm-hmm. kind of um, a global phenomenon. I'm not sure there's very good evidence to say that the parliamentary system has proven to be more resilient against that threat than the presidential system. And, and what I mean by that is that you know populism is all about the language of the people against the elites. Uh, this idea that institutions are kind of corrupt and that there's some pure sort of democratic voice that the populists claim to represent, and that they're therefore entitled to sort of wreck whatever institutions are standing in, in their way. Um, and we've seen that in all kinds of ways, you know, Boris Johnson, in a kind of unprecedented way, dissolving parliament at one point to try to um, get his Brexit plans through. Um, there have been other examples of sort of breaking precedent and trying to force, um, you know, force traditions that had long been sort of untouched. So, um, I think whether you're talking about a parliamentary system, a presidential system, or something else, that language of, um, you know, tearing down corrupt institutions, um, claiming to embody some kind of popular will that's not expressed in institutions, can be just as corrosive to a parliamentary system as it can be to a presidential system,
0: you know. Yeah, it's just, it's just difficult. <laughs> These are challenging times, I guess.
1: I'm not sure there's an easy solution. I mean, I, I do think you know, gridlock um, it is so endemic to a presidential system, and so many of us find that so frustrating that mm. I think on balance, maybe a parliamentary system would be better, but, um, well, it's it's hard to see that kind of fundamental change ever happening, for one thing. Um, it's so right. it's woven into our constitutional framework and, and our traditions. Um, and then, as I say, I think there are other disadvantages to the parliamentary system, and particularly the undemocratic, the potentially undemocratic nature of a parliamentary system would really not sit well, I think, with um, you know, with American political culture.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That's interesting. So thank you for that. Um, you know, the UK is in the midst of, of what I hear is being described as a sort of a cost of living crisis. Um, so, so sort of back to, to Brexit, you know, how much of that can be attributed to Brexit and, and the fallout of, of leaving uh, the European union?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, you know, I'm not, I'm an economist. um so I, I won't I won't claim you know any certainty about these questions, but it's clear that, although inflation is a global phenomenon and it certainly seems to be affecting Europe broadly um, more than the United States at the moment, uh, inflation and you know the sort of cost of living crisis have been more pronounced in the u k than anywhere else. Um, so inflation projections are higher in the u k than they are elsewhere in the g seven, elsewhere in Western Europe. Um, and, you know, I, I think certainly it's it's clear that, you know, things like, um, you know, uh, sh- shortages of food in the supermarket, um, energy costs, you know, home heating bills, all of this is much worse in the UK than it is elsewhere. Um, maybe not order of magnitude worse. I mean, inflation's fairly high, for instance, in Germany as well, but, but it is clearly worse in the UK. So to the extent you can measure a difference between Britain and its, you know, Western European neighbors, I think Brexit is clearly part of the problem. Um, And and Brexit has contributed to the problem, I think, in in at least two ways. One is that it's exacerbated these supply chain problems that we've heard about elsewhere, right? So um, I probably don't need to go into all of that. But what what makes it more complicated in the British case now is that there's this extra layer of bureaucracy and and red tape, right? So if um, British supermarkets want to import uh, plums from Spain or cars from Germany or, or whatever it might be, um, there's now a whole sort of thicket of regulation of customs checks of um, and things like that that weren't there when Britain was part of the common market. So um, part of what that means is that when there are sort of limited goods for other reasons, um, because of supply chains stretching all the way to China or, or backups at major European ports or whatever it might be, those scarce goods are, are probably going to stay within the EU first. It's just easier for things to move within the EU than just to kind of bridge that bridge that gap to Britain. And when they do make it to Britain, of course, the costs will be higher. So there are trans- transaction costs associated with trade now across borders in a way that wasn't true before, as you know, um, opponents of Brexit had had predicted. I have to say, um, the other piece of this is the labor shortage, and again, this is something that is pronounced you know, across Western economies. It's also something we're dealing with in the US because of falling immigration. It's also something they're dealing with in the UK because of falling immigration, um, at least in the years immediately after Brexit. A lot of European workers just left and have continued to leave. And so this means at the same time that the workforce is aging, that some people who got sick because of COVID have left the workforce, there are enough workers to go around. Uh, and that, of course, then bids up the price of labor. It bids up wages. And that's another contributor to inflation. Now, what's interesting is that the conservative government, uh, which, of course, has taken a broadly anti-immigrant line and has sort of, you know, has bought into the Brexit line that this will allow us to get control over um our borders, has actually been forced to sort of loosen restrictions on immigration, immigration increased quite substantially over the past year into the UK, because of this pressing economic need. Um, But even that need isn't quite being met. And so, um, you know, that's another way in which Brexit, at least at the margins, I've heard some economists say 30% of inflation can be attributed to Brexit, I don't know if it's quite that high. But there clearly is at least a measurable piece that's making inflation worse uh, in the UK than it is elsewhere.
0: Okay, thank you. Thank you. Um, so finally, um, I want to give you an opportunity. Can you tell us uh, a little bit about your book, uh, The Age of Emergency, Living with Violence at the End of the British Empire?
1: Sure. My pleasure. Um, right. So this is a, really a history that's focused on Britain in the 1950s in a moment when its empire was, was falling apart. And I, I think there is a connection to, to Brexit that I'll get to uh, in a moment. But just to give a, a bit of context first. Um, We normally think of the period after 1945 as as the post-war period. We think of the 1950s as a broadly peaceful period. Certainly in the British context, part of what I'm trying to do in the book is to remind us of all the ways in which that wasn't true, because Britain was fighting these rather um, brutal and intense wars to try to hold on to its empire in in various places. Um, Notably, um, the case studies I discuss most extensively in the book in Malaya, what's now Malaysia, uh, Kenya, and Cyprus um so these were conflicts in which British forces used torture on a wide scale there was aerial bombing there was the collective destruction of, of villages um, among other kind of unsavory tactics and so the the question the book really sets out to ask is how much did people in Britain know about the use of that kind of violence and how did they then respond to it as you can imagine that's a complicated question that's the the story the book tries to to uncover um because there are all sorts of different responses but Part of what I tried to do was simply to map the kind of networks of information that allowed people to understand what was going on. Um, So I look at the uh, the letters that soldiers would write to their families at home from places like uh, Kenya. Um, I looked at the novels that soldiers would publish after they came home. I, I looked at the missionaries and the aid workers who worked in detention camps and would then communicate with people at home. The journalists, of course, who reported on these conflicts. And also, I was really interested to find um, a wide range of uh, television dramas and um, theatrical plays and other kind of cultural um, products that were trying to tell the story of, of these conflicts. And what I found was that these sources were all really quite explicit about the brutality that was involved in these conflicts. Some people were quite uneasy about them, and, and they, they felt a kind of sense of complicity that Britain was involved in these dirty wars for a kind of questionable end. Others were completely on board uh, in a kind of, you know, jingoistic way. They saw this as a kind of racial struggle, um, a fight for British greatness, um, whatever it might be. Um, And so trying to to weave together those different kinds of responses into one story is really what the book is about. Um, But the connection to Brexit, I think, comes in in the story of those who were kind of more enthusiastic or at least apologetic about the use of violence, because I found there was a very substantial minority, but a vocal minority within the conservative party. Um, that really felt betrayed by conservative party leaders. So the 1950s from 1951 on is a period when conservative governments are in power, they're fighting these wars, but they're also, by the end of the decade and into the 1960s, effectively giving up. Uh, They're also retreating from empire, and of course all of these wars are going to end with with independence for these new nations, um, as is true in, in the rest of the empire. And so a very substantial minority of conservatives, they feel a kind of betrayal. They think their leaders are too liberal. They're not fighting these wars hard enough. They're not using brutal enough tactics. And so I think there's a kind of radicalization that goes on there. There's a kind of despair at the loss of empire, a kind of despair at the loss of British greatness, which ultimately I think is going to get channeled not just into anti-immigrant sentiment, but also into anti-Europe sentiment. And that, that suspicion that the conservative party is governed by men who too moderate, too liberal, too cosmopolitan, not willing to defend the nation. Um, I, I think that does sort of end up feeding into um, Brexit in, in the very long term.
0: Interesting. Well, thank you so much, uh, Professor Lindstrom, for sharing this information, you know, about what's happening now in Britain uh, and, and your book. I really want to thank you for sharing your knowledge and expertise with UVA's alumni, friends and families. Thank you. Thank you. I really enjoyed it. Great, thank you. And thank you for listening for our upcoming podcasts and other lifetime learning programming, recordings, and blogs. Please visit our website at engagement.virginia.edu forward slash learn. You can also find out about our podcasts on the Virginia Audio Collective, which is a network of UVA podcasts uh, hosted by WTJU Radio and can be found at virginiaaudio.org. So thank you again and we look forward to you taking part in future lifetime learning programs.